and welcome to Crazy Making. I'm Simon Adam, host of Crazy Making, and today I'm joined by Dr. Lauren Tenney. Lauren is a psychiatric survivor, activist, artist, author, and academic, first involuntarily committed in 1988 at age 15. Her or their work aims to expose the institutional corruption, which is a source of profit for organized psychiatry, and to abolish state-sponsored human rights violations, such as murder, torture, and slavery. Lauren holds a PhD in environmental psychology. Hi, Lauren. Hi, Simon. Thank you so much. Uh, hi, everybody. I appreciate being here today. I'm great, thanks. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. Thanks for joining me today. Um, yeah, so Lauren, tell us, what are you up to these days? What What is your work involving these days? Well, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about some of this. Um, I think that there's a couple of things uh, that I've um, in the midst of. So the first is the looking at, um, you know, from, from, from institutional structural uh, design of the ways that psychiatry um, is implemented in racist and classist, um, often gendered ways uh, in the States and probably elsewhere in the world. Um, so a lot of what I look at right now is historical, um, but has modern implications for how we got to be in a system where people of color are overrepresented in court-ordered services, psychiatric services, and underrepresented in services that are voluntary, and all uh, psychiatric services based in uh, fraud. Um, and so I think that that's a big piece of it. Um, my uh, I was very fortunate to tag along with Darby Penny when she first went to see the suitcases at Willard State Hospital that became part of the um, suitcase project. And when we were at the archives, the archivist had mentioned that there were these journals that were there um, that were found in the old institution's attic when they were cleaning it out. So in like 2000, and, this was like 1999, um, in 2005, I was with the Mental Patients Liberation Alliance during an eight-day fast on the Capitol lawn, uh, protesting the use of electric shock on children, um, where we got a small policy out, but not nearly what it should be in New York State, still uses electric shock on children, and still court yeah. orders electric shock, and electric shock is a big thing uh, that I work toward ending. Mm -hmm. um, but while I was there across the street was the State Archive Library. So I had made an appointment to go see these journals, which turned out to be the Opal, uh, 10 printed bound journals uh, from 1850 to 1860 that were written and edited by the inmates of the Utica State Lunatic Asylum. Wow. Um, yeah. Uh, and in there, they talked about a lunatic's liberation movement and recovery, and they didn't use the term peer support, but they did use the term fellow feeling, which I always thought was very interesting. Um, when I first found these journals, I really positioned them, positioned them as like evidence of the modern mental patients liberation movement existing in New York in the 19th century. Um, but since then, I found and started to shortly afterwards get really exposed to a lot of the history. So somebody liberated a journal, American Psychiatric Association's Journal of Insanity, uh, published in 1852. 
and had given it to me. And in that journal, there was an article called Startling Facts from the Census. Uh, and what it basically was, was uh, support for the institution of slavery. And the argument that slavery kept people well because there was higher rates of idiocy and lunacy in the North than in the South. Um, this really started um, and took all of the work that I was doing, which was originally uh, a project called BIAS, Building Integrated Adolescent Services. It was um, talking with young people about what they wanted the system to look like, who, who used the system. And all of my work in the PhD program, like on that halted and I turned to this historical work. This is like in 2005. So since then, um, I found, and uh, Vanessa Jackson's uh, work, uh, healing, and you can find her work on healingcircles.org. She's a phenomenal researcher and social worker and um, uh, talks about her own personal experiences inside of this. She, she wrote, um, uh, as part of the National Empowerment Center had uh, supported some of her work. And so she wrote these uh, two monographs. Uh, one was African-American story in our own voice, African-American stories of um, uh, survival, uh, oppression, uh, recovery and survival. And the other was separate but unequal, the legacy of racially segregated psychiatric hospitals. Um, so it was in this work that she really exposed some of the Benjamin Rush and uh, Cartwright diagnoses uh, that were specific to people who were enslaved in the 19th century. So drapetomania and dysgasia atheopica. That, I had had that in my mind when I read, I put from her work when I read the um, original uh, materials from the Journal of Insanity in 1852. So that's how I kind of had even zoned in on it. Since like we've figured out that the, the diagnoses of a drapetomania, a person enslaved wanting to be free or trying to run away and dyskagia atheopica, a person who didn't follow rules or uh, broke tools, um, were both instituted in uh, the same year that the Fugitive Slave Act was passed in the States. And psychiatry's role in developing the um, alternate system, and then for 40 years in the Journal of Insanity, discussing fighting amongst themselves, whether or not segregated institutions needed to exist in order to carry out the supposed treatments of whippings for um, people, uh, where ultimately the people who were in favor of segregated institutions um, prevailed because segregated institutions in the states existed. Um, and so I've been able to try trace back through the Journal of Insanity some of the establishing motives of the American Psychiatric Association's establishment. And part of that is that they were um, originally trying to strong arm the state because the state was trying to, now that the state was giving the asylums money, uh, they were trying to regulate them. And so, so it, it, the Association of Medical Superintendents of American Insane Institutions originally became um, an, in existence because um, they were trying to strong arm the state into not having them regulate them. Um, since then, the, the work has really unfolded and the documentary that I'm currently working on is called Mental American Monster, The Sprawl of American Psychiatry. And 
I'm in the process uh, with Richard Hall of working on a couple of different avenues for this documentary, including some really out of the box stuff that I'm hoping will take off in the near future. But it, it starts with seven, um, seven stories all stemming from the Utica State Lunatic Asylum uh, that really tell the story of psychiatry's involvement with the system of slavery. Uh, with ultimately the development, I believe, of the 13th Amendment, which legalized slavery as a form of punishment. Um, forensic psychiatry, prison psychiatry, obviously was part of where that was operating, but also I believe um, that the asylums operated in silent tandem with the prisons. And so that's a big part of what it is that we're looking at in terms of the system of psychiatry's involvement with promoting and protecting the system of slavery in the United States and profiting from it. Um, and then moving into the, 18, for, into the 1880s, moving into the development of the system of eugenics. Um, and uh, their involvement, uh, particularly of George Bloomer, who then eventually winds up going and being the commissioner of uh, the Butler retreat on Rhode Island, um, which was funded through um, Dorothea Dix, who's often held as like a great, you know, supporter of, you know, the quote unquote insane. Um, she was a Southern sympathizer and um, she convinced uh, Cyrus Butler to fund the other major portion of Butler Retreat, which was originally funded by John Brown of Rhode Island, who was part of the main um, slave trade family of Rhode Island. Um, and so as, uh, you know, in, in earlier work, I thought that it emerged from the South to the North, but really it was once uh, Rhode Island um, took, uh, made slavery again illegal in Rhode Island, that the asylum started to open up complete with farms and shops where moral treatment was the means of um, where labor was treatment. And it wasn't really until after the Civil War that the Southern and states started to adopt asylum models. Uh, so it was really as the collapse of slavery in the North happened, the establishment of asylums uh, with moral treatment emerged and then moved south uh, after that. So that's some um, Mental American Monster, The Sprawl of American Psychiatry. And it really goes into those stories. Um, so that's one project. Uh, very, very interesting work, uh, Lauren. So if I can just maybe sum up just for my own knowledge too, you've got, you're doing the sort of historical uh, delving into these documents and um, bringing uh, those and the implication of those to the to the current mental health system to try to understand uh, why and how racism, genderism, classism, and all of that is sort of infused up, along with eugenics within psychiatric practice today. Uh, yes, um, but also like the, you know, from the beginnings of the system, there there was like a line like back, but also looking at issues of like practices within psychiatry. So from the 1850s, I've, because Phoebe Davis, who was locked up at the Utica Asylum, she wrote this book two years and three months at the Utica State Lunatic Asylum in 1855 and then in 1860, it's a sequel. 
But she talked about all of this, um, you know, how she was subjected to restraint and solitary confinement in the Utica crib, the adult sized crib with the top slat that, you know, people were uh, kept in. And so in the New York State Legislature, the asylum managers gave testimony about justifying their use of restraints and solitary confinement in the 1850s. And so it also like shows the long pattern of um, the practices of psychiatry as human rights violations and them constantly having to defend their um, practices of torture to the state and the state consistently uh, instead of like shutting them down, giving them more money and letting them expand um, and looking at some of those. And from the beginnings, like they, they said like that it was uh, that people should not be deceived upon coming to the institution, that they should know that they were being there forced. So like from the beginnings of the system, it was a system of force. It wasn't a system of voluntary interaction. And so I think also highlighting some of the more fraudulent practices and uh, rights abuses uh, and torture that the system perpetrates against people is also part of uh, Mental American Monsters goals um, in those ways. And like, at the same time, like it also is like, part of my goal is to be able to put together these videos and then interview historians about the 19th, mid 19th century and what they know, and then ask them to watch the video and then ask them whether or not their perception about American history changes at all. Because I believe that when you look at psychiatry's role and you do it without accepting psychiatry's authority, that it fundamentally changes the story of America. Um, I think we're still trying to get people to understand that the 13th Amendment legalized slavery as a form of punishment here. Um, so there's um, a real disconnect, I think. And I think that it's in part because the, for centuries, people have just given authority to psychiatry. Um, and if you retell the history with challenging that authority, I think we come out with a different history. Um, so that's also part of what I'm trying to do with the project. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm finding myself interested in this concept of the monster. And you're, you know, in, in this documentary that you're developing, can you tell us a little bit about how is the monster framed and who is, or who is this monster in this documentary? It's a good question. Um, it actually came out of conversations with Richard Hall. That's how we started working on this together um, when I was talking about it. I think he said something like it's a monster and, and it kind of just emerged out of that. It is a monster. Um, so sometimes the monster is the building. Sometimes the monster is uh, the individual psychiatrists. Sometimes the monster is the, um, the, the organized psychiatry, uh, the organizations of psychiatry. Um, sometimes the monster is the government uh, and then very often it's talking about the people who were positioned as monsters who needed to be locked up, right? Um, so it's, uh, <laughs> it's like a multidimensional, like pivoting kind of center. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and the truth of the matter is that there are stories and that there are actions that are monstrous that are done on all sides by all people. And I think that's part of where the discrimination 
broadly against anybody who's involved with psychiatry comes from. And it's hard and uncomfortable to deal with. And it, you know, uh, it makes discussions about human rights a lot harder. Um, and I think that we still need to have those discussions and that like one of the things that I've found myself saying is that human rights are most necessary when they seem less, least warranted. Um, and so that's the, you know, kind of the, the, the story of that. Um, one of the stories is of um, William Spears, who was an inmate at the Utica Asylum. And he was there because of charges of arson. And William Spears became known as um, one of the main, uh, in, in the Journal of Insanity is discussed for uh, like decades as um, one of the first uh, rational maniacs. Um, you know, and that's all in quotes, but that's their language. Um, he actually on Bastille Day set fire to the Utica State Lunatic Asylum. And I haven't actually been able to show that it was a political thing. It seems that after he won his case to be released from the court ordered uh, stay at the asylum that he decided to stay on and continue to work at the asylum in what seems to be some kind of peer role. Although I still haven't exactly been able to prove that. Um, but apparently his keys were taken away from him and that made him mad and he set the asylum on fire on Bastille Day, 1857. Um, so it, you know, it uh, over the, next decades, it became a major story because part of what they were arguing was that there were psychiatrists who said that he wasn't insane and he was feigning it. And there were other psychiatrists who said, no, you can have um, seem sane, you know, and I'm using this language all in quote air quotes, but it's their language, um, that you can seem sane and still have a part of you that is irrational. So that's where the rational maniac came from. Um, and on the other hand, for decades, the Bastille Day fire was also discussed in the Journal of Insanity in terms of protections and fire, uh, fire prevention and building design. So as an environmental psychologist, I found that very interesting to see how um, buildings were looked at because they didn't, they didn't have the water supply from the Erie Canal. They couldn't get the water up to put the fire out. So most of the building had burned down. Um, but as best as I can tell, there is no actual political association, and it was just a coincidence that it was Bastille Day, which, if people don't know in the States, Bastille Day is the day that uh, the Mental Patients Liberation Alliance, I think this is our 42nd annual Bastille Day demonstration to speak out against psychiatric oppression and celebrate the human spirit. So it's a, <laughs> a weird twist in, in, the, in the fabric, but um, yeah, I think that the, the monster is definitely the stemming point for the stories as the building, uh, and the organized psychiatry. Mm -hmm. I could see that it's certainly a grounding theme. I'm really, really excited to, you know, to, I'm looking forward to seeing this documentary and potentially even using it in my work, uh, yeah, I, I, I love that you're trying to work with a sort of balancing uh, that his, how historically um, mental patients have been framed as the monster, right? Always this sort of, this hybrid of human inhuman type thing. 
uh, always at risk for violence and always to be feared and controlled and managed. Um, and yet there's this whole other institutional historical discursive system that is monstrous in and of itself and that needs to be brought to light. So um, yeah, it's, it's wonderful work, Lauren. I'm looking really forward to, really looking forward to seeing it. So thank you. Um, yeah, awesome. So, okay. so, you know, okay, so I have, I usually always ask my guests this, question number three tends to be around um, a sort of a critical, a, like a, a critical question around psychiatry and the psychiatric establishment. And so I ask you, if you had one bone to pick with psychiatry and only pick one, uh, what, what would it be? I just wish they would tell the truth. Like, I, I, I feel like that would solve a lot of problems. Um, the, the lack of, you know, the lack of actual science that they have for anything that they talk about in terms of any actual medical diagnostic procedure on any level. There's no blood test, there's no brain scan, there's no genetic anything. Um, but there's tremendous biological evidence for the damage and death that they cause. And so I don't understand why the thing that they say that people experience that they have no evidence for is real. And the real iatrogenic effects and death that people experience because of their response to this thing that they can't prove is real is considered unreal. <laughs> um, and so I, I think that it really is the, the lack of forthright uh, honesty about what it is that they uh, do, have done, uh, intend to do, the lack of um, honesty about the system of social control that exists um, and that they perpetrate with great taxpayer resources in the states anyway, and I'm sure elsewhere, and generate huge profit from. Uh, and 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 also social standing, right? It's it's they they within you know even within medicine if they're not like considered you know at the top of the medical chain within society they're still given a great authority, and I think that that's really the whole of the problem. And so then the real like the real sort of proof then would be something like uh, something material, something biological, as you said, in a blood test or a scan or something in the same way as, for example, diabetes or cancer is diagnosed. If psychiatry were to classify itself as a, as a branch of the medical sciences. Well, yeah. And then even then, I, I don't think that um, a court order should be allowable and that there are like, like I was diagnosed with diabetes in 2016. And instead of taking the seven drugs that they gave me, I cut out carbs from my diet and I reversed it. So like there is, you know, my A1C went from 9.8 to 5.8. And so I, I think that there's, you know, even, even within the realm of if there was biological evidence that the legitimate medical uh, you know, th this is the, that whole issue around medical autonomy, like that people should be able to make whatever decisions they want about their personal medical choices. Um, and that includes having full informed consent and choice. Uh, so even if they did at some point come up with some kind of biological anything, I still don't think that their way that they practice would be a legitimate thing. And I think that if somebody was being honest that they would offer a variety of options 
for what it is that people were experiencing if they were seeking um, some kind of support to, in the first place, right? So there's, there's, I, you know, it, it's hard because there's, I mean, there's as many situations as there are people, right? So like that's that's at the first base, right? But yeah. if you were like very messily like chop them into two different sections, you have like some people who are really seeking support and looking for something, and those people should be interacted with in an honest way and being given all of the potential information and options that they can have to then make a choice of what they want to do. And then you have people who aren't seeking anything or are told that they need something. And I think that either way, those people should, you know, like we should talk about it as social control. We shouldn't talk about it as medicine. And so I think that even if that situation was being more honest, at least then there was a more honest conversation that people were having about what was going on. Being more informative and, and more uh, open and um, again, so it's it's the sort of power you're talking about, right? It's the it's the behavioral control, it's the social control, it's the coercion. Uh, that kind of it sounds like it's sort of central to your critique of, of the psychiatric establishment. It it definitely is, and I think the experience is also. I mean, I I you know, I, and there's a big difference between like somebody saying please stop this and and somebody else saying you have to stop this. Right, like it's two totally different worlds of what the experiences for people who are coming in have, and I think um, so. I think like from a psychiatry perspective, that's part of it. But I think from um, you know, for our for the human rights movement, for the psychiatric survivor movement, particularly, um, we're we're in jeopardy. I I, I don't and I don't pretend to have any of the answers, but I, I know that every time we turn around, we're losing another pillar of the movement. And, um, and I know in Canada, you've lost um, some great people also in the last, uh, oh, yeah. Don, Don most recently, but Sue and Bonnie, obviously, and other, so, and Graham, I, I mean, it's just, it's just a constant loss that we're experiencing of people who did do things every day. And that lack of them not being here doing what they did every day adds up very quickly. And so whether it's in the social media footprint, if it's in the publications, it's, if it's in activism, if it's in, you know, letters to the editor or who's calling, you know, which state bureaucrat to tell them what, all of that daily activity of all of those people isn't happening. And that is going to take and is taking a toll on our movement in a very serious kind of way. And um, I, don't, I don't know what the solution is for it. Um, we are organizing a, a conference um, called Aging in the Movement and in the World. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, both to try to help organize and catalog the works of people who we've lost, uh, and importantly, the works of people who are still with us so that they can, in their own voices, leave something for future generations of the movement. Um, and then also, like, you know, how do you avoid court-ordered psychiatry when you're a senior citizen? How do you, uh, for those who have, like, worked for decades, how do you organize your papers and get them into an archive so that they'll be accessible? 
um, what are issues around guardianship and other kinds of things. Just those things that people who are aging and having other kinds of issues that are then getting caught up with psychiatry after spending decades fighting against it at the last days and, and weeks or months of their lives are being subjected to mm. psychiatry. And it's just a, um, a, like a soul crushing kind of thing that is just, it, it's just such a like slap in the face. Um, and I'm not sure that there aren't some people who enjoy that. Uh, who are getting the chance <laughs> after years of people fighting to do that. And I think that one, and you know, that the reality is that there are leaders of this movement that we have that are currently alive that are struggling with and being subjected to uh, court ordered psychiatry or other forces. And um, if we can't effectively stop it for ourselves, how are we broadly supposed to stop it as a society? So I, I think that these are some of the real struggles that our movement is up against in the coming days, decades. I, I mean, like if we make it decades, but that, that's the thing about finding the opal from the 19th century. We've always existed. As long as there have been institutions, there has been resistance. And I think that that is really like part of the key of formulation for people to remember that this is not new. We've been doing this for centuries. We've been fighting against what they do to us for as long as they've been doing it to us. And that there's gotta be some way to create that thread so that people coming in now can hold that history when they're fighting um, and don't feel like they're like the first ones ever doing it. I really like the, as long as there has been institutions, there's been resistance. Oh, thanks. That's my dissertation. <laughs> that's, yeah. Oh, is it really? That was my, yeah, that was my, uh, that, it was, it was my, for my literature review, that was like one of the main, that was one of the main things that came out of it, that it, 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 it is, um, that it is here and it is apparent and we can trace it. Mm. Um, and that, you know, the, and that they've also always had these products and um, policies that they've used in order to, um, control us yeah and yeah you and i i will spread the word uh about your conference uh it's a very important conference and i i know a lot of people working in the area and i i'm working also with a whole bunch of students who might be interested in it so uh stay tuned and yeah you're right we've lost we have lost as you say pillars we've lost giants we have lost um elders in the movement like you know bonnie burstow uh, we lost Don White's, Paula Kaplan. Uh, these are irreplaceable uh, people, uh, but the movement is strong and it's uh, moving forward and we continue to grow and we can grow our own. We can continue to grow uh, elders within the movement and uh, it's alive and well. So uh, there is hope. Um, can I... Um, make a shameless uh, plug for um, Religious uh, International Handbook of Mad Studies has so many people's work in this. Uh, Yasna and David uh, Peter did such a phenomenal job in getting this book to reality. Um, so if people don't know about it, um, it's just out, and um, it's a really 
Yeah, just tell us, uh, can you just tell us the title of the book and the- Oh, sure. It's, um, it's the Rutledge International Handbook of Mad Studies edited by Peter Bresford and Yaza Russo. Thank you. Um, I'll, put, I'll put a link uh, to it in the uh, in the description of this podcast episode as well. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. Sorry, I didn't include it before, but I'm 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 really excited about it. Um, I I was able to have a chapter included in it on spirituality, psychiatry, and mad studies. Um, and then also Craig uh, Nunes just uh, edited um, a volume that I was also included in, and I was really honored to be included in on racism in psychology. Uh, also published by Rutledge. And that book also has some phenomenal chapters looking at international perspective on the ways that psychology is racist uh, and carries out racist programming. Um, Very interesting. I, I, I think I have that book. I will also link it into the, um, into the description of this uh, uh, episode. So thanks for that, Lauren. Absolutely. Um, Wow. Well, thank you for this. I mean, I, uh, before we close, can I ask you if there's any final words uh, you want to say, final words of wisdom before I let you go? Um, I just I just uh, I have one more. Um, th there is a campaign. Uh, I, I mean, I know I don't know. I, I think that if we had people internationally supporting us, it would put different kinds of pressures on the states to have to respond. So mm -hmm. I am going, you know, so I we are organizing um, through Mental American Monster a campaign to abolish the clause in the 13th Amendment that legalizes slavery as a form of punishment. And um, that is uh, about there's Facebook pages and stuff on that and all of that. But I think that for people to connect and to know your own lines and your own values and to um, find others who share your um, passions and beliefs. Um, I, I think that that is uh, only like that there are more, what's the famous line? There are more of us than you think. Um, <laughs> Mm -hmm. And so um, to find others who are working on things that you want to see accomplished and do it. You don't need to be an expert in the field in order to hold a protest. You need your own experience and your own um, passions about it. And all of this other stuff can come or not, but uh, don't wait until somebody you know, declares you able to do something before you do it. Do it when you want. Well said. Thanks, Lauren. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much, Simon. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Have a great day. Subscribe and listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. Reach out to us by email at crazymaking at yourq.ca. That's crazymaking at y-o-r-k-u.ca. And follow us on Instagram at crazymakingpodcast. This podcast is written and hosted by me, Simon Adam, and edited by Among Antharich Sagar. Thanks for listening.